Um, we are going to read, we're kind of doing a, a, a newish thing here for us today. So our gospel reading is from Luke chapter 23, verses 32 uh, through 43. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him, that is Jesus. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by, watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. This man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jesus, in your goodness and in your mercy, would you speak to us today? Um, would you enable your word to be made real, to be made Flesh and bone among us as your body, in Jesus' name, amen. Um, so we're kind of doing this thing we I've never done before. Maybe you have. I don't know. I haven't. We're going to, this last week was All Saints Day, November 1st, um, a day when the church typically kind of casts its attention toward all its saints. Um, and we in our stream, we tend to, you know, look at y'all because <laughs> um, scripture has this funny habit of calling all the people who are in the Church saints, even when they don't deserve it, okay? So um, it's the, the word gets used kind of in this, this interesting way in Scripture. It's always sort of this, the attention on, the way we think of saints often is people with, you know, they've already like achieved halo status, right? They're already at, in the presence of God, and they've achieved kind of this perfect or this, this heroic, this holy life. And that's true. The, the word saint should and, and is used in that way, and it ought to be, but Scripture also has this way of looking at the church and calling all of you saints, right? Kind of in the way that we look at somebody and we see them um, as what they can be and not just what they are, right? And Scripture tends to look at people, I mean, and it always blew me away in 1 Corinthians because in, in, in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul calls all the people in Corinth saints. Do you know what they were doing in Corinth? <laughs> Do you have any idea? Go Google it, okay? It was not good. It was not a nice place. It was a church that needed to be canceled. And Paul walks in and like and works on saving it, right? And he calls them saints at the very beginning. Well, so part of what we want to do in these next three weeks, we've got this week and the 14th and the 21st, and then when we come back after Thanksgiving, we'll be in Advent. Happy New Year, by the way. Um, Christian New Year starts the first week of Advent, okay? 
So, so that's going to be the 28th, but in these next three weeks, we want to just slow down and look at the lives of some really important and sometimes overlooked um, saints in the Christian church. And the reason for this is oftentimes we come to scriptures, we see, we see what it demands of us, and we just think that cannot be done. Like, good for Paul, good for Peter, good for John. They were there at the cross. Like, they saw stuff I could never see. They had experiences I could never experience. Peter got to walk on water, right? These people got to do things that, that I would never be able to do, and therefore that kind of life is this idealized, heroic life that's unattainable for me. And part of what we want to do is help you to see that the call to holiness <laughs> is not for other people. The call to holiness is for you. And this is rooted in our fundamental assumption and conviction that you are made in the image of God. And that no matter how much you try to screw it up, you actually can't. You cannot screw up the image of God that's in you because you didn't put it in yourself. Right? It was there before you, and so it's stamped too deeply. And you might try to rub it out and make it all murky and do all kinds of things to make it the image of you or the image of somebody else, but, but God's image is stamped so deeply in you. God's image is stamped so deeply in everyone that he's created. So the conviction, that the, the desire to turn toward the lives of the saints and to see who it is that they've been, what they've done, and how we might in some way imitate them as they imitate Christ is for us to recover some of that image of God in ourselves. Okay? So, so today... I'm going to talk about um, a young lady uh, named, well, she's like 1,700 years old now, so she's not that young, uh, <laughs> Macrina the Younger, all right? She lived in the 4th century um, in a place called Cappadocia, uh, which is like modern-day Turkey. Um, it's where would have been in, in the region that the Book of Galatians would have been written to, okay? It's sort of in this, uh, that Asia Minor area. And that's where she was raised, born and raised. Born 324 A.D., okay, if anybody's counting 324 A.D., this is, pretty, this is pretty, pretty early on in the life of the church. Is there that one slide? Um, well, I only have one slide today. Okay, so this is her, um, you know, her headshot. Um, this is Macrina the Younger. Her grandmother's name was also Macrina, so that's Macrina the Elder. Um, and Macrina the Elder was a pagan. Uh, she became a Christian when another... Saint came along and converted her, and then she suffered persecution. So Macrina the Elder was living in the hills, running from persecution, living in caves for years, trying to get away um, from people who were looking to kill Christians. When that persecution ended, she comes back, and they, she and her husband make their, their home there. She has a daughter named Emelina, who is Macrina's mother. Okay? Emelina marries a guy, um, and they have nine children. Nine kids, okay? Macrina's one of the older ones. Um, and Macrina has two, but she's got four really important brothers. She's got two, three brothers I'm going to tell you about today. The one is Basil, okay? Like the herb that tastes good on pizza, okay? Basil. And then there's Gregory uh, of Nyssa. Gregory of Nyssa. Those are her two brothers. She also has a brother named Naucratius, which is just, Hard to say, and so I'm. I'll just, you don't have to say that. All right, <laughs> Basil, Gregory, and Naucratius. 
Now, Kratius is like the family favorite. He's good at every sport. He's good at everything he does. He tries woodworking, and he makes the best bowl in the whole class. And he gets gold stars everywhere he goes. He's on the varsity basketball team and the varsity football team. And the girls swoon when he walks into the room. And like now, Kratius is just like everybody's favorite. Okay? He said when he walked into a room, everybody's eyes was fixed on him, and they couldn't look away until he left. Okay? But now, Kratius dies an early death, probably killed by an animal while he was hunting. Kind of a, a strange, strange thing. And this affects Macrina on some level, that this, this favorite of hers would be sort of taken in the prime of his life. So she takes the lessons that she learned from her grandmother, Macrina the Elder, the persecuted Christian, and her mother, Emelina, and um, she actually becomes, her other two brothers, Basil and Gregory, she becomes their teacher. She's their sort of homeschool teacher, okay? She teaches them not just academically, she teaches them in the faith. She teaches them how to memorize the Psalms. She teaches them how to pray. She teaches them how to encounter God in a real way. And they're both pretty bright, you know, smart cookies, so they go away to school. They go to Athens, to the university, to Harvard or Yale or whatever. They come home from Athens. Basil's all cocky about all the classes he's been taking and how he's learned so much and he's so smart, and Macrina just smacks him down and says, you think you're so smart, but that's not what this life is about. This life is about serving the Lord. And if you want to take this education and go be a big, successful bigwig, you can do that, but you're missing the things that I taught you when you were a little boy. I changed your diapers, right? I know what you're about, Basil. <laughs> Don't get a big head just because you went to school. Macrina, as you can see, was a lovely woman. Um, and she got engaged to a young man who, as they were engaged, uh, was killed and died early. Um, she was heartbroken over this. She was in love with him and... Um, looking forward to getting married, but when he died, she just kind of felt like she couldn't, she couldn't do it with anybody else, right? She really felt this pull instead to devote her life to Christ, to devote her heart to Christ. And uh, this, is a, this is a little book written by one of our general superintendents, uh, Carla Sundberg, um, that, that covers several of these things. But in the chapter on Macrina the Younger, she uses, she says the line, spirituality is not imaginary. Spirituality is not imaginary. That when we consecrate ourselves, that when we commit ourselves to something that matters, that when we devote ourselves to a worthwhile cause, that when we take our internal life and we turn it toward the light of Christ, that, that has real impacts and real effects on the way that we live, right? We don't get to say, well, I'm saved by Jesus, and thanks be to God, I, I, I confessed my sin, and I believe that he died on the cross, and I believe that he was raised from the dead to prove that he really, 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 really was God, and therefore I can essentially do whatever I want as long as I show up from time to time and confess my sin. No, spirituality is not imaginary. It has concrete, real 
world impacts. It changes how you treat people. It changes how you live. It changes your expectations of yourself. Macrina became known for constantly praying the Psalms. She, like a lot of Christians in her day, had all 150 memorized and could and would pray them on a regular basis. When her father died, she talked her mom. This is maybe my favorite part of her story. <laughs> so her dad dies, and she goes to her mom, and she says, Mom, here's what I think we should do. <laughs> I think we should sell our house and move to our cabin, right, out on the river, River Iris. And we're going to take all of our servants. They were a wealthy family. We're going to take all of our servants, everybody who depends on us, and we're going to move them out there to the cabin with us if they want to come. And we, even though we're essentially noble women, like, you know, we don't do things like bake bread. We're kind of too high and lofty for that. But we're going we're gonna to take all of our servants and everybody who, who works for us, and we're going to live as they live and give all of our wealth away with the exception of what we use to establish this, this kind of monastery or this communal life pursuing holiness. And so they do, and she talks her mom into it, and they live this life submitted to one another and submitted to seeking the Lord. Submitted to seeking holiness. And this, maybe for us as Protestants in the 21st century, is one of the hardest things when we think about these heroes of the faith from years and centuries, sometimes millennia gone by. As we hear about the things that we've done and what they, how they disciplined their bodies, right? There's a fancy word for it. It's asceticism, okay? Asceticism. Why would they do things like that? Why would they fast, give up food when they don't have to, right? Why would they pray all night when they don't have to? Why would they give away more than, you know, why would they see all of their money and all of their clothing as essentially belonging to others? And so any chance they have, they're finding a way to give it away. Well, this kind of ascetic struggle is so important for us to get right. I'm convinced in Macrina's case, what she was doing, just as she had her heart and her attention and her affection fixed on her fiancé, on the one who she was supposed to marry. When he was taken from her, she turned all of that affection and attention and devotion and energy and love onto the person of Jesus Christ to the point where there was nothing in her life that did not belong to Jesus, even her house, even her inheritance, right? even her servants, how can I find everything that I've been given? How can I find a way to raise it up to the Lord as an offering? Even and maybe especially if that means lowering myself. And so she lives this life in constant prayer and communication, like, like a woman in love who just wants to be in contact with her beloved all day long. Right? I mean, Josh was doing it to Kay this morning. 
we're in the driveway. He texted him, we're ready to pull out. <laughs> Here we are at the stoplight. I think he texted him 20 times before between his house and getting to church. <laughs> and that's Macrina. Jesus, I'm waking up. What do you want me to do? Right? Lord, I'm making bread. How can I pray and glorify you in the bread that I'm making? Lord, I'm serving that bread. How can I care for and love these people who I know you care for and love? How can I see the image of you that's in the beggars that are passing by my house? How, how can I see the world as you want to see it and not the world as I want to see it? In constant communication, constantly saying, Lord, what is it that you want to do? And in case I don't have words, thanks be to God, there's the Psalms. And we trust and believe that God has given us his word to discipline our own words. There's this kind of, I almost said this morning, um, and I hope I can communicate this well. I'm sorry if I can't. <laughs> um, I almost said this morning that Macrina's life was like the life of, of an engaged woman looking forward to her wedding, right, where she holds off. She holds off on things that she has every right to do, but she holds off on them because she's in preparation for this moment that's in the future, this moment when Jesus, her bridegroom, her beloved, is going to be made fully real and alive to her, right? I almost said that, but here's, here's why I don't quite want to say that. It's because Macrina didn't just look forward to the day when Jesus was going to be made real and alive to her. She held off and she had all kinds of boundaries that she put into her life, but it was those boundaries that made him alive to her even now. And in the Christian life, we talk sometimes about this thing called the already and the not yet. That this reality of heaven that we're looking forward to, there will be a day when we will stand and sing with the saints of heaven, holy, holy is the Lord, right? But the second chorus of that song says, so let it be today. Because we live this kind of life that both sees things as they are. We're not, we're not dumb, right? Like we see the world broken. But we also know the true reality, the things that are most real, is not the way we see it. It's not the way that we experience it. It's not the way that we know it. But it's the way that Jesus sees and knows it. And we so trust his word and we so trust his promises that we can live in that reality even now as we experience the brokenness. You see how those two things can overlap? And so Macrina is both fiancé to Jesus who's looking forward to the moment when the groom will be right there at the altar. But she's also living as his bride, even here. She's also living as his beloved even here, even now, in that kind of intense personal communion and communication with him. I'm so eager for you to know that. And I'm so eager to know that in my life. That I know it's still ugly. I know marriages are hard and families break apart, and kids don't do what you want them to do. I know that jobs don't work out, and health kind of just goes all the pot. 
I know that politics is not doing what we would like it to do and that our neighbors are not the kind of people we'd like them to be and the finances didn't work out the way we expected. I know the world is broken, but I also know that there's this promise. And when we live with our eyes and our hearts transparent to the Father, that promise is more real to us than even the brokenness of the world. struggled with the songs this week. Uh, you may have noticed a theme. They all had kind of this, I think they all had the word soul in them um, somewhere. Um, and, and the reason for that is, is Macrina kind of writes a lot about the soul. And it's good for us to remember that we have souls, right? <laughs> it's good for us to remember that we're not just bodies. That we aren't just a collection of nervous systems and musculoskeletal systems, and you know, we're not just brains with electrical wavelengths walking around until our brain quits. That's not who we are. There's something that is deeper and more real in each of us that the material world cannot touch. And it's more real because God has made it in us. And so scripture will often use language like, bless the Lord, O oh my soul, O, oh, O, oh, O, oh, my soul, right? That's Psalm 103. And, and that's just a way of saying with everything that I am, with everything that I have, bless him, heart, mind, soul, strength, everything. Just put it all together, O oh, my soul, that's all of me. But we have this life that is not just attached to the material world, but is in fact, alive and aware of God who is spirit. Friends, we're not just meat and bone walking around the earth. And that means that as we live, it's so critical for us to take into account our soul, the health of our soul, the life of our soul. This is the prayer Macrina prays. Oh Lord, you have freed us from the fear of death. You have made the end of life here the beginning of a true life for us. You, who compassionately gave paradise back to the man crucified you, with you, remember me also in your kingdom. If I have committed sins in word, deed, or thought because of the weakness of our nature, don't let your eyes discover them. You who have power on earth to forgive sins, forgive me so that I may be refreshed. May I be found before you once I have put off my body, having no fault in the form of my soul. May my soul be received into your hands, blameless and spotless as an offering before you. I struggle with that image a lot. What am I doing to my soul? When I sin, what am I doing to my soul? When I sin on purpose, <laughs> when I sin knowingly, right? When I'm like, this is a terrible thing to do, and I'm going to do it anyway, right? What does that do to my soul? It does not do good things. 
It does not do good things. It does not make me the kind of person who knows and lives in the light and the truth of heaven. When I was in high school, I did what Bell and Robin are doing right now, which is I shovel a lot of horse poop. Um, I would go on Saturdays to Charlotte and draw John Ritter's house out in Charlotte, went to my dad's church, and, um, and they would hire me, and I'd go out to their house, and she would pay me $20. She would pay me $22, always a $20 bill, and a crisp Thomas Jefferson $2 bill, right? She just thought those $2 bills were the coolest thing ever. And so um, she'd pay me to go shovel horse poop on a ranch or um, pick weeds out in the paddock when she didn't have anything else for me to do, right? But always at the end of those Saturdays, I would come inside and I would sit out at the table. And Charlotte was in her 70s, but she married a much older man, uh, John, uh, who was in his 90s. <laughs> he was 92 years old. And I would sit with John and we would talk. And we would talk sometimes for 30 minutes, 45 minutes. And he'd tell me stories about what it was like growing up in San Francisco. And he was just this little city kid back in the 30s you know, running and jumping on the trolley and doing all of this kind of crazy stuff. And now he lived way out in the country in the North Bay. And he'd reflect on all of this. There's not one thing I, like some big quote I remember from John sitting at that kitchen table. But I knew that I was sitting with him in the last years of his life. I knew that I was talking to him as he started to fade away. I knew his mind was starting to go. When he would drive me home, he'd put a foot on the gas and a foot on the brake because <laughs> he had better reaction time that way. And I was learning to drive at the time. I'm like, you're not supposed to do that, right? <laughs> it's one foot on each. Okay. <laughs> Driving me crazy. But I sat with John in those last years, months of his life. And he died my freshman year of college. I made one of my few trips home to go to his funeral. And to watch somebody come up to the very edge, it was the first time I'd ever done it. It was the first time I'd ever been with somebody as they came closer and closer and closer to the moment of actually going home. And when I reflect, On that period, what so impressed me was how much time I wasted on stuff that didn't matter. How much nothing really matters unless it's single-minded devotion to our bridegroom. Unless it's single-minded devotion to the Lord, who is the one who is coming to save. Unless it sees clearly that this, this life has nothing to offer us except preparation for, present, for the presence of God. If we're going to be a people who sort of sit around and go <laughs> pet our passions, <laughs> who nurture our anger, <laughs> who just kind of keep our greed here, because, you know, it's kind of nice to feel a little greedy sometimes who just keep a little bit of sin around because we're used to it. It's just, it's just a waste. It's just a waste of time. And so often I find myself in, usually it's hospital rooms, with people who are just passing the time. 
and they're just trying to get through it. And on the one level, I understand it. That's a, there's a level of suffering there that I have no capacity to understand at this point in my life. But on another level, we have been given every moment to be practicing for the very presence of Christ. And what's going to happen when we're there? Are we going to be a people who, like the virgins in Matthew Gospel, show up unprepared? Are we going to be a people who show up without the right oil in our lamp? Are we going to be a people who show up to the dance floor and it's time for the first dance between the groom and the bride and we don't know the dance steps? Because we've been given all this time to practice and we haven't taken it. We haven't practiced loving the unlovable. We haven't practiced self-surrender. We haven't practiced sacrifice. And I think about the thief on the cross and all the wickedness I'm sure he committed during his life. And the fact that when he turned his mind and his heart and his attention and his love and his affection and his hope and his expectation to the Lord, it didn't matter what he had done. He had a place with Christ in paradise. So there's this tension. There's this tension to the fact that we are saved simply because we throw ourselves on the Lord. But we've also been given such a gift. If you're here and you're saved, you have your whole life ahead of you. Don't waste it on sort of nurturing the stuff that doesn't matter. We think often about our financial fitness at the end of our life. Our retirement. Is our retirement account going to be okay? Are we going to have a place to live? It's going to allow me to keep this standard of living to which I have become accustomed. Right? We think about ourselves from the end. But how much, I wonder, do we think about our souls from the end? Who do I want to be when I get to the end of my life? What do I want my soul to be when I get to the end of my life? As my body fails me in my final years, I want to be, what is it for you? What's the blank? Do you want to be somebody who's knowledgeable? Do you want to be somebody who prays with every breath? that you breathe? Do you want to be somebody who has a host of people around you that you have poured out your life for, that you've sacrificed for, that you've given to? Do you want to be somebody who has people that you've put through college, who has kids that you've sent to camp, who has a gajillion Bibles that you've sent out into the world so that people can encounter the gospel? Who do you want to be? Do we think about our souls from the end of our life? And if we do that, we begin to understand what kind of steps it takes to get to that place. That in everything we do, that in everything we have done, we are practicing for the day of our union with Christ. I hope and I pray 
that when you arrive, that when I arrive in the presence of the bridegroom, I'll know the dance steps. I'll know the dance steps. I will have used this time that he's given me to learn a kingdom life, to learn a gospel-shaped life. So here's the challenge. We're coming up on Advent, right? November 28th. Advent is not just a season of, you know, Christmas parties and an unnecessary amount of cookies, right? It's actually a season of fasting and penitence and preparation for the Lord's coming in Jesus Christ in this manger. We're not supposed to arrive to Christmas with our eyes glazed over from a, you know, diabetic-induced coma. <laughs> That's not how we're supposed to show up Christmas morning. We're supposed to show up Christmas morning ready to go. Clear-eyed, bushy-tailed, because we have had our minds, our souls fixed on Christ. Okay? So here's the challenge. As you think about yourself from the end of your life, who you want to be, what you want to do, what you, the kind of soul you want to have, what is it that needs to get disciplined? It, I mean, for me, it's that when we go on board retreat, there's a jar of Reese's Pieces <laughs> that's sitting on the counter, and I need to just look away, right? Like, that's, that's what needs to get disciplined, <laughs> is, you know, my sort of attachment to all things Reese's. <laughs> but for you, I mean, it may be something else. Maybe it's just the need to be bold and courageous about something. So here's the challenge. Think about your life from the end. What's one step you need to take this Advent to get to that place? If it's food, if it's friendships, if it's relationships, if it's you know, your media habits, whatever it is, how can you fast in such a way that you will be disciplined when you come to Christmas morning that your body, that your life will know the dance steps of Christ just a little bit more? Macrina died in 379 A.D., laying on two bare boards of the bed. She died praying the psalm silently with her eyes closed. When they lifted up her body and her attendants began to undress her so that they could prepare her for burial, they found an iron cross pressed against her breast. A sign and a symbol, not of the glory and the power, you know, it wasn't gold and silver and rubies and all this kind of stuff, but of the simple life of suffering with Christ the iron determination to become the kind of person who knows the dance steps of the kingdom so that when she saw her bridegroom, she would be home. My prayer today as we come to the table, as we come to this banquet, this precursor to the wedding feast of the Lamb, my prayer is that we will come with our hearts and our minds fixed on the one 
who is calling us into that great and glorious love. Would you pray with me? Father God in heaven, we know that we do not ever retire from struggling to become like you. And so often it can just feel like the world is chipping away at our intention and our devotion. Jesus, I pray that as your people, we would be bold not just to be saved by you, but to be formed by you. Lord, not just to come out of our sin, but to come fully into your life. Lord, help us to embrace all the difficulty, all the pain where it's necessary. Lord, all of the challenges of this life in Christ so that ultimately our hearts, our minds, our very souls might be fixed on you. That your image would be made more and more manifest in us each and every moment. Amen. Amen. The Communion Supper instituted by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is a sacrament.